I would I would also rub Trump's belly. Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are Irenacast. I'm Jeff. It's your uh, boy, Alan. I'm Bonnie. I'm Casey. This is Rajiv. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination. This week, you have asked for it. You have written to us about it. You have been clamoring for this episode uh, several weeks back. It was actually the very first episode with uh, Rajiv, Bonnie, and Casey as official hosts of the show. They talked about diverse theologies. And one of the theologies that they mentioned in this particular episode was process theology. And ever since then, we've gotten email after email after message saying, we want process theology. I want to know more about this. I'd never heard about this before. So this is our offering to you. Uh, We're going to be talking about process theology today. And then for our segment, we're going to be doing something that we've done in the past called Would You Rather? I think we're all familiar with that particular game. So process theology, this is a big conversation. And I have a feeling, I'm not a prophet or anything or a fortune teller, but I have a feeling this is going to be a topic that we are going to be exploring further as we go throughout the show. And it's going to be mentioned throughout. So this is going to be kind of, I guess, like the 101 class. And our professor for this particular class is none other than Bonnie Rambob. Yay! Gonna... Yay! So as our resident process theology professor, we're going to – she's going to give us a quick introduction, let us know, here's kind of what we're talking about, and then we're just going to kind of have a discussion from this. And uh, I have a feeling that this is going to be one of those episodes where we're going to get a lot of People processing throughout the whole thing and give us more information. And this might be this might be a more than one parter, but we don't know. We're gonna turn it over to Professor Bonnie and uh, instruct us in the ways of process theology. Okay. Well, first of all, um, I should say that I am not an expert in process theology, <laughs> but I have taken a few classes in process theology, and it has been in my own personal journey. It has been a way that I could continue to be a theist. So I'm super excited to share it with you. I think it's the new gospel, frankly. So I'm glad we're finally having this episode. And listeners out there, I just want you to know I've been asking for this for a long time, too. So we're finally here. What is process theology? I'm a, a pastor in Progressive Christian Church. And every now and then, I gather people together to talk about God. And sometimes I start that conversation by asking people to draw an image of God. And it's really interesting because there's, of course, a variety of of images that, that come up in a question like that. But sometimes, quite often, actually, there's a picture that looks like the one on the Sistine Chapel of the man with the long white beard and the long white hair, very human, up in the sky looking down on earth. Fist bumping Adam. Just fist bumping Adam, exactly. I, it, it always like catches me and it catches the people who draw it because they realize they don't have many other images for God other than that. And even though they've transitioned maybe out of a fundamentalist or evangelical understanding, God hasn't really transitioned with them. And so they're 
kind of like stuck between this experience of something sacred and mysterious and beyond, and yet kind of like tethered to these old notions of the sky god image. So uh, Bishop Shelby Spong, he writes that the evidence that this god is dying or perhaps already dead is overwhelming. So process process theology is an invitation into a whole new way of imagining God. So nearly 100 years ago, in 1927, Harvard scholar Alfred North Whitehead gave a series of lectures in the University of Edinburgh titled Process and Reality. And only a handful of students attended those lectures, and those who did attend had no clue what Whitehead was talking about. So one the student described Whitehead as a rambling old man. And if we sound like rambling people today, it is for good reason, because process theology is super complicated. Alfred North Whitehead is the first person to kind of bring this idea of process as real. Well, he's not the first person. That's not true. It goes way back to like Heraclitus. But in modern times and modern thinkers, Alfred North Whitehead uh, brought this idea that reality is not based in particles. It's not substance-based, but instead the very tiniest pieces, and we can't even use the word pieces, but the tiniest occasions of reality are process. And he built a whole metaphysics on that. Whitehead was a philosopher, a mathematician, an educator, and also a professor of physics. And he sort of upset this notion of atomic particles as the basic building blocks of matter. And instead, he proposed that our perception of what we see as material in the world, as physical in the world, is really a perception of an actualized process. Are you, are you guys with me? Do you want to talk about this at all? I know it's a lot of stuff. And I, I want to throw in, yes, I'm with you, but I've, I've been studying this uh, for a little while. And you, you said you weren't an expert, and I want to challenge that because I took one class process with you. And the teacher quoted you <laughs> when explaining one of the concepts, pulled a segment out of your paper and quoted you to teach a class in process. Sounds like um, an expert to me, Rajiv. Yeah, Sounds and, like an and we're even invited to co-teach, and et cetera, et cetera. So, I don't know. Don't be humble. I, I get, you know, you said it's complicated to explain. What that means to me is that it's probably easily misunderstood because I've heard people talk about process over the last, like, five to ten years. And every time they've spoken about it, it's kind of been a caricaturization of what process is. Or maybe they didn't have enough time to, like, tell me everything. So if it feels like we're going to the bottom to build everything up, it seems to me uh, from an outside perspective that that's the only way to do it because it's a totally reorienting way of looking at um, the world. And I, I like I like looking at the world that way, not just as particles that are like a set thing moving around, but that everything is constantly evolving and changing. There is nothing that's not in relation. Like I can't think of a particle that's not in relation to anything else. That's an impossible like idea, yet we treat everything that way, including God, including ourselves. Like Even what it means to be a human has been constantly evolving for so long. And so thinking about the world as events of I'm affecting everything and everything is affecting me starts to rebuild reality. And I can see why this would be a huge topic from there. 
I just want to make sure I have this clear particle based reality versus what I've sometimes said is event based reality. My stuff's on a table right now and I tap on the table. This solid, apparently solid surface is actually a bunch of tiny little pieces kind of deciding to stick together in in some fashion. So this isn't a solid fixed table. It's a series of micro events that my perception engages with over time. And so I've historically fooled myself to think this is a solid fixed object when it's actually a bunch of pieces in process. Yeah. And, you know, Whitehead's epic work, Process and Reality, was not received very well because people have a hard time thinking of all of reality as process-based. When we experience the things as concrete, at least that's the way our language allows us to experience them. So the way that I, I'm thinking about this is becoming versus being. We live in a world where everything is being. It's just, it is. Instead of Whitehead's notion of becoming, we are becoming. Even that table, Rajiv, is becoming. It's eventually going to decay. It's always in process, right? It's aging at every second, every moment. It's, we're like, it's becoming eventually. And so, um, yeah, I just wanted to throw that in there. That's like the smartest thing I have to say today, I think. <laughs> yeah, becoming, exactly. Everything's becoming. So what happens when we think of a God who is also becoming in relationship to the universe, the world? Yeah. Hold on, Bonnie. Hold on. I, are, are you telling me that God is not the same yesterday, today, and forever? Are you telling me that, you, that, that this theology – and I put that in quotes, mind you – is saying that that God is in process, that God is growing, that God is changing. Is 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 that what you're telling me? Yes. <laughs> and you know what else I'm going to tell you is that God is not the ultimate reality. <gasps> oh, dang. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so in process theology, the ultimate is described as creativity. Creativity is what just is. And when we say creativity, we mean like this momentum towards novelty, towards newness. So the first act, if you want to call it an act, but the first force or momentum that is creative, creativity undergirds God. So you could say like God is creativity's baby. Uh, if you're listening and you need to hit the pause button, it's okay. <laughs> we 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 all have to when this is fresh but um so to rephrase and just to be clear creativity is the ultimate force in the universe yes it's it's the ultimate yeah ultimate is is the best word to describe it and then god is so that creativity can be made manifest so creativity can do creativity's work or, or so that there's a way to order the chaos that is creativity into what we experience as butterflies and tables and the people we love. So, so the, the ultimate power is creativity. So follow me, like, here's my, uh, 
my lame attempt at coming up with an analogy. Uh, so creativity, the ultimate force of the universe, let's say like, like electricity, it's coming into our world via whatever. And God is the harness of that creativity in order to create order to create something. So for instance, like if electricity is coming to our house, then God is the appliance that's harnessing that creative power to do something specific or do a creative work. Do you think it's a rule and not a force? Like you're talking about creativity. If it was a, like a force, like a magnetic force or uh, some sort of force that acts on the universe. Whereas creativity might be more like a, a rule, like a principle, like gravity or something like there's this, the universe is set up for, for this. It just is, is this creative principle. And like, I, I don't know if every process theologian goes down that specific route, right? That like God is creativity's baby. I haven't studied it enough, but yeah, that, I mean, that's kind of a, it's not the best metaphor actually to think of God as creativity's baby. It's just that creativity is the ultimate and it's probably both. It's both a rule and a force. And and this is what's really beautiful about process thought. There are so many possibilities that can coexist at once that we can we we just are invited to hold a lot in sometimes intention. Sometimes uh in nuanced ways. We can hold a lot at the same time in process theology. So yes, yeah, so let's look at let's take a look at the our creation story in Genesis. If those of you who identify as um, with the Bible as a sacred text, if we looked at Genesis with a process lens, we might say that the world is yearning to be created, and God's role in the creative process is to respond to that creative impulse. So creativity is like a is like a constant impulse that's everywhere. It's everywhere. And then God responds to that creative impulse, not by commanding that light for existence come into existence, but by feeling. So God is like tending to the creative impulses that are all over everywhere. And God feels that yearning. And in our story, it's like sweeping over the formless void, paying attention to what longs to be. And God loves the world by intimately offering up the relevant possibilities to each becoming subject. So to, to couch that in like scientific terms, there's a huge shift from like Newtonian physics and understandings of the world that 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 is like Isaac Newton talked about the world like a watch that has been wound up and it just plays out what it's been designed to do. And moving in toward like chaos theory and things like that has kind of unseated some of those almost medieval ideas of, uh, you know, things being atomistic, like things go to the ground because they're supposed to go to the ground because that's how they're created or something like that. Like there's there's this move toward a different way of, of looking at the world. What you're talking about, Bonnie, is self, self-organization. Spontaneous self-organization is the concept that if you put energy into a system, it will self-organize just naturally, like as a, as a principle in the universe. And so if you have this chaotic void and there's like, you're saying like everything's becoming right. Like we're all becoming and it's because of the principle of self-organization. So there are scientific underpinnings to all of the stuff that you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Scientific, mathematic. 
Um, so yes, so God then loves the world by offering all the relevant possibilities to each becoming subject. And I mean, this can go from the tiniest becoming subject, the tiniest, you know, like not particle, but particle in process to the entire world. Like it can, it's scalable in, in terms of the way we can think about it and look at it. And so all the possibilities are are presented and then each becoming individual chooses what will then be integrated into their particular process of becoming so all of our lives though we experience things and i'm going to use humans as uh, the becoming subject since that seems to be most relevant for theology but as we become we're constantly integrating all of these things that God offers to us, and not just God offers to us, but all of the other becoming subjects that we're in proximity to. And we integrate them into our own process of becoming. And so we're like a series of actualized occasions. So it's like become, and then once the becoming subject becomes, it dies. Process theology takes death very seriously which is another thing that I like about it. And that might be a conversation. I don't know if we want to talk more about that or, today or talk about other things, but we become and then and then the becoming subject perishes. So we've experienced it as continual consciousness, but really it's just a very rapid succession of becomings. And not like you can just become anything. Like the, the, the history behind you and where you're at right now of all of the, the different particles in your life and of you know the universe and your own family and you have all led you to a like a series of choices like i couldn't just be a bird if i wanted to tomorrow but there are genuine options for me in front of me of of but the the history informs those options and the choices of individuals and god all inform what my possibilities are next which is a fascinating way to think about it exactly it's it's relevant possibilities, not infinite possibilities. Right. And that there is no future, right? I mean, like we are making, we are becoming the future every moment, which makes each moment really valuable and important because those options are still always available to you. Yes. And God tends to each of these processes. So in, in God, God is the one, the world is the many. And, and, uh, in fact, in process theology, Alfred North Whitehead has this idea that God is the, is the one plus one because there's always other becomings in process. So uh, even go, though God is one, God is not a fixed one. God is also open to the future and changing along with the world in relationship to the world. God is my plus one. <laughs> so Bonnie, clearly like this is. You, you light up when you talk about process theology, like this is a passion of yours. And you said from the beginning that it's only because of process theology that you're even a theist, that you would even, you know, maybe even be still within the Christian tradition to a certain extent. Uh, so my question to you is, you know, all this stuff is great, but like in in practical terms, someone who is considering this idea of process theology, what does it do and how does it like how – how is it freeing? 
like when you talk about it, there's this sense of freedom. And how how would it be freeing for someone coming from a background similar to all of ours to begin to explore process theology? What does it do for your faith or you, or not even just your faith, but you as a person as you kind of begin to explore that? Or what did it do for you? Um, for me, it w- it's always been difficult to think of God as a controlling entity in the universe because it's hard to reconcile why God intervenes in some times and doesn't intervene in other times. So I could never understand God as all benevolent and also all powerful. In process theology, God is really neither. God is, God orders creation, God offers relevant possibilities to each becoming, God doesn't control any of it. And out of the relevant possibilities that God offers, some may be really good for the becoming subject and some may not be so good. And God can lure towards what? Towards beauty, towards goodness, towards all of those things. But God can't decide what that becoming subject is going to incorporate into their own becoming. Which I think gets misunderstood. And this is the part. I love the ideas of process theology, and I've been headed toward it, I think, kind of my whole theological evolution. Like, I accepted that God is not impassable, that God can have emotions and be affected by the universe a long time ago, and, like, that uh, the future is open. I, I came to that quite a while ago, that there is genuine randomness and genuine chance, and that the development of the universe kind of proves that fact, that that the universe is not set in some sort of totally predestined way where every small thing has already been written and it's just playing out. I let go of that a long time ago. The sticking point for me with process theology was uh, the idea, how does God interact with the world? And I think what I've heard, maybe I heard it wrong, but I've heard other friends in the past talk about process theology saying God like doesn't act. And the, the, the idea of, of the lure and things like that from what and you can correct me if I'm wrong is that like you, we, we never talk about God being able to make a circle square because that's just illogical, right? Like that's that that's like a meaningless kind of like thought, like, oh, can God make a circle square? And it's like, well, now you've kind of moved out of the realm of reality into like some mind game that we've kind of made up. And the idea of God making free beings choose things is the same kind of of talk that God can't coerce an individual to make a free choice. So like the, the idea that God doesn't order the world and like, God doesn't make me choose something, you know, that's not, that's not how it works because that wouldn't be a free choice, but it doesn't mean God doesn't act. God does act, but God acts with creation in a way that is not coercive in the sense that determining my free choices. It it seems like a nuanced kind of thing, but I think lure is even a a weird metaphor. It's only one metaphor for what that's actually talking about. You know what I mean? Like God makes a decision and I make a decision and together that creates this new thing. That's what a lot of process theologians were talking about. Make, God making a decision? God, Yeah, God intending something, doing something, bringing energy and choice into the situation. At the same time, I'm doing that and together those decisions create something new. And that's how the whole universe is structured so that God is not choosing for me. God has God's own choices. God's not coercing that, but is inviting 
right? Or putting uh, energy or information into the system in such a way that like there is something co-created and completely new that God couldn't do on God's own because I have to bring my freedom and choice into it as well. Yes. Um, I, I I'm trying think- to understand it because this is like – I haven't been studying this for years. This is something I'm kind of coming to very slowly. Uh, so the way Whitehead talks about it is God throws out this aim, and that may be what you're talking about when you say decisions, but decision is not what it is. Act is not what it is. Intention. Intention. We could say intention. Um, God offers the relevant possibilities and then maybe offers like an aim. If you incorporate this into your becoming, it is the best thing for you, but not just you, but all of the related processes to which you're connected. See, this is a very relational theology. And it's complicated, right? Because what is best for one process may not be great for other processes. So ethics then becomes really huge because you the ethical questions almost always answered with it depends. Like clearing out an anthill is good for me, but not for the ants or maybe the ecosystem that is dependent upon. Um, and that idea that all of reality is relational is is really cool. But I think I discovered in reading some of the the like papers people had written on Whitehead and what's the other guy? Hartshorn. Uh, Har- yeah, Charles Hartshorn. It's not yeah. that God's never an efficient cause. Like there, God is a causative agent in the system. It's just that God never, and not just God, nobody can make anyone else's decisions. Like you could put a, you know, you could put like a, a gun to someone's head and say, you're going to decide this. But ultimately that person, at least even mentally gets to decide what actions they choose. And that's kind of how the whole universe works. So there, God's not coercive in the sense that God's not making these decisions for the people or the elements in the world. This is not a cause and effect reality. I think we're having two very different conversations, Alan. I think that's the disconnect. This is not an action decision based reality. It's process. Process. Yeah, everything is is a relational becoming. Exactly. So you can't using words like decisions make us think that things are actualized. Yeah, I think what what I'm what I was kind of getting at is that it's God's not removed from the equation. God is like essentially a part of it. Right. And and that's what you're saying. But all of reality is a relational thing. Right. And God is, God holds all of it. So God not only tends to each becoming, but also tends to the choices that you didn't make. If you, if we want to use choices, tends to what was not incorporated. And then it's held in God and it is available to future becomings. So we only can become out of what God offers. I I think one of the biggest challenges of this, because this exchange between you both is making me think of other people's thoughts. One of the biggest challenges of process for me, and and I encountered process in a period of pretty – I think pretty legitimate atheism. I was just like, eh, there's there's no nothing out there. But when God talk came into the picture for me at that time, it was the old God, you know, the God that I, you know, dissolved. 
in order for me to really engage process, I had to fully, truly let go of that old framework of God being in the picture at all and try to encounter divinity completely, you know, from as much of a blank slate as I possibly could. I had to free myself from those old constructs in order to allow a new construct to even be comprehended. I mean, I still don't comprehend it, but to to at least uh, attempt to engage with it without all this baggage. And that that for me was a pretty hard jump, even though I had already been like, yeah, this doesn't, this old sky god doesn't make sense. So, so what, right? I mean, um, we've spent a lot of time philosophically uh, talking about this, Bonnie, but I mean, some of the things that I want to just bring back that you've said that I I would love to hear more about for those people who are listening, who are uninterested in like the heady part of this, um, but want to know why this matters to their day-to-day, God offers options to each becoming subject. So there is no ultimate way. Listeners who are who are sitting out there wondering if God has a plan for their future, and they want to be sure to follow that exact plan— they need to hear that there are many options. We are yearning to be created. That's something also that you said early on that um, I would get tattooed on myself. And we know that art doesn't take one form. And so um, there is a multitude of ways in which you can express yourself, express your faith, be in the world, and there is no judgment about how you express that, right? Right. Right. So I just wanted to bring it back to like the the physical. No, I don't know. Uh, but can you just say more about that? I mean, may, this is powerful and compelling, right, to us, to me. And I, I want people to understand um, what this could mean for their day-to-day, what this could mean as they are restoring or returning to their faith, if they want to. Yeah, and I, I think... Casey, you hit on, like, why does this matter? Why does what we think about God matter? Well, because it, it affects everything else. I mean, right? Like, um, what we tell ourselves about, about the infinite um, is how we believe we are in the world, I think. I mean, that's what all these texts are about, people trying to relate to the infinite. Right. And I think with that, too, at least for me, it's what we think about God is what gives us permission to do in life, yes. right? So if if God is our ultimate authority, how we frame that authority is our permission base. So when I first read a book on process theology, it was my senior year in high school. I had a, a, a Sunday school teacher that int- introduced me to the idea of what? theology, right? Wow. So um, – but, but but the process theology book came as I was just looking through all this stuff. But I, I entered the world of theology, which I think I think the gateway drug for Theobrogens is the whole uh, you know, predestination versus free will kind of debate, right? It's it's our gateway drug into to to moving through the world. And it was in the midst of that discovery that I came across process theology. And I honestly I immediately discounted it. God can't change. God can't change, you know, and I was a zealous late teenager uh, in the midst of, you know, in the, in the full throw of conservatism. Um, but then as I went through and as I had more experience, as I had more processes in life, I began to see, oh, this is this is a much you know <laughs> better and fuller way. And it gave me permission to do 
more. It gave me permission to push a little bit. It gave me permission ultimately to say, I can't be in this world anymore, which I never would have had that permission before. And I think that that was for me, the most freeing thing in terms of exploring a theology and why, like you're asking that question, why our relationship or why our views on God are so important because it's our, it's our permission base. And taking that even a step deeper, I love that this grounds all the work that we do together. Like everything that we do at intersections or in Irenacast or when you hear people say, I'm deconstructing. Like this, this grounds it in something very holy and sacred. If, if God is ever becoming with us and changing with us, the decisions that we make and the process that we go through itself is reflecting something that's true about God too. And God is in the midst of it. So it's, it's not as if, oh, there's, you know, your family may think about you as if you're, you're just off doing your deconstruction thing and you're processing and talk down to you in that kind of like way. This understanding all of reality as relational actually makes us very holy beings who have kind of this like calling to, to move through this. So when you ask someone like, what's your truth or like, what's your thing that you're there? There's something very real about that. That's not just made up inside someone's head. And You recommended a book, and I started reading it about halfway through Catherine Keller on the mystery. So good. I think like anyone who wants to jump into this, you should start there because one of the opening chapters, uh, several of the opening chapters are so good. One of them talks about truth in process. And so I think for evangelicals coming away from evangelicalism toward progressive Christianity or even process theology, that's the first thing to get revisited. Like we talk about truth with a capital T, right? It's the set thing that like is just a given. Like we've, we've been told this is the way the world was created. There's this is how things are supposed to be. This is the given. Well, if all of the universe is relational in the very beginning and every reality itself is a relational ever like bubbling up kind of thing, truth itself is a process. It's not something that's just set. And so for me as a, as a white dude, as a straight white man, Hearing that truth is not just a capital T, but a relational process grounds all of the like womanist theology, all the liberation theology that I've heard in something incredibly like prescient. And to me, it makes so much more sense now. It's not like, oh, I own this capital T truth. It's like together through speaking and listening, you actually arrive at something that's, that's different than the way that I think we've couched our understanding of reality. It's changed a lot for me. Yeah. And think about how worship changes those who still engage in worship. Um, You know, we've heard this expression, at least I've heard this expression my whole life, that one way to explain why you're not always behaving well is because God isn't finished with me yet. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, this we're worshiping a God that is affected by us and our becoming. So we're not finished with God yet in process theology. And so what we do, what we integrate into our own becomings in relationship to all the other becomings that we're on the planet with or in the universe with affects the future, changes what's relevant and possible to the future. Yes. You know, you said earlier, that's what makes ethics so important to this model, because we no longer can say that the devil made me do it. We no longer can say that God even made me do it, right? Um, but we are responsible. There's a deep responsibility to the way we, we encounter with, 
with with all of creation, with everything. You know, Casey, your your question about why does it matter? I think for me, you know, the the old saying that we become like the God we believe in. I think there's a lot of truth to that because yeah, you know, we all aspire to things. What you know, religious people tend to aspire to be more godlike or or follow God's will, as Alan alluded to earlier. And so to to aspire to be relational, contributory rather than controlling, and in like radical relationship, knowing that moments together um, make things possible and and inform things either for beauty or for harm you know it 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 makes you a little more thoughtful uh about every little interaction uh as well as big interactions that's huge it, it, it's it's a seismic shift my my favorite verse uh that i always quote is from first john and it says uh it's in the middle of it says as that one is so are we in this world Whatever we think about God, whatever we attribute to God is what we're going to replicate in this world. And it's couched right in the middle of a huge thing on God is love. And so, like, to me, that's that's the grounding of all theology. And like you said, if, if God's coercive or in Rajiv's vernacular, if your God is a dick, then, <laughs> like, that's what you become. And uh, something Bonnie said, uh, I, I kind of wanted to, to revisit. You said, maybe we are not finished with God. And I loved, oh my God, I loved when you all preached at my ordination. It was so good. <laughs> and now I'm hearing some of what Bonnie said in like totally fresh ears, which is fantastic. Um, I think for some people who are still kind of processing what they believe and deconstructing things, they'll, they'll hear that and probably hear at least that part of my brain gets like triggered. Right. Oh, we're not finished with God as if we're more powerful than God, as if we can control God. And the, the thing is, like, in process theology, nobody has that power to, to ultimately determine the meaning or the trajectory. We all affect each other. There's no way to not affect one another. I think it was Whitehead uh, who said something about – he was talking about theology, and I read somewhere in preparing for this, that what we've ascribed to God was best left to Caesar – like all of that kind of controlling coercive power. It's not as if we have that on God, you know, like we're not in this like supervening kind of sovereignty relationship where we force God to do things or whatever. Like there's, there still is that necessary relational interplay. And so, yeah, I mean, we are not finished with God and we do affect God. And that, that relationship is a, a give and take kind of thing. It's always been interesting to me how throughout the Christian tradition, God, love, and power have gone together. Because how, when, and how is love ever controlling a coercive? I, I, I can't believe I'm quoting Rob Bell. <laughs> oh, my God. I, uh, Don't do Rob it. Bell, Rob Don't Bell, do I, it. I will. Rob Bell said it one time, and it's been stuck in my head. He said, controlling power and love are mutually exclusive. And he said that in a book. I can't remember which one. And it just got stuck in my, my head. At first, I was like, oh, shit, that might be true. <laughs> like, I was never able to kind of get rid of it. And I think that's true. So just kind of wrapping this up with the question I think is relevant. So we talk about uh, – our relationship with God and how important it is. Uh, and I think that the next phase is, is that how does that view of who we think God is 
affect the people around us and the choices that we do. And I think that many of us, when we're coming from such a capital T truth view of God, then it also then becomes easy for us to place people in categories and say, because this is what God says about people, you you know, whatever the category is, heaven or hell, uh, good or bad, Christian, non-Christian, you know, all that stuff, or even just the very basic categories of religion themselves. I think what this offers us is a God who gives us permission to view people with nuance. Going back to the idea of truth is that, wow, they can have a different way and it be just as quote unquote right as my way. And that's also, I think, one of the most important like real world aspects of this is that once our view of God begins to transform, it gives us permission then to to be more empathetic, to be more open, to be more inclusive, to to understand that there are many, you know, using the using the um the metaphor of art and creativity, there are many expressions in which this can come come to being. Uh, so I wonder if you'd little, speak a little bit, like maybe to your experience in terms of how this propelled you. Because another thing that you light up about when you talk about is protesting and social justice and going out there and viewing people's uh from you know people's perspectives. So like. Where where does that fit into how you view process theology? Well, first of all, what we do matters in a very real way. We are not on some predestined track. So that right there changes the way I think that people, you know, if you believe that, then the way that you behave is going to change because you realize that what you're doing is you're co-creating with all the others that you're in relationship with. You're co-creating what's available to the future. And we don't know how it's going to end up. There's no end to the story because we don't, we have no idea what the end's going to be until we're always creating the next steps that then are available to the next steps after that. So justice work becomes really important and really relevant in our existence. There's a momentum towards novelty, towards newness in the universe and things like poverty and racism are extremely narrowing. They make existence very tiny and small. Just like suff- whoa, just like suffering. Cuz suffering someone like their whole world gets down to a cell, to a to an act of violence. They can't their brain doesn't interact with things outside of that. It's a world destroying kind of thing. Interesting. When you think about male supremacy, white male supremacy in particular, you think about all the human potential that is lost because we've operated with these ideas that the only folks who deserve to have power are men and white men in particular. So how many other humans exist on the planet besides white men? So in order for us to really cooperate in this co-flourishing, which is what I believe the lure is toward, co-flourishing, we have to expand what's possible. We have to eradicate poverty. We have to dismantle racism, dismantle sexism, all the isms, homophobia. Because if we don't, then we're missing out on things that we could integrate into our becomings. Yes. Does that make sense? So so not only do we make choices on the possibilities, we create possibilities with God and with the whole universe. We're actively setting the stage for what is possible in the next generation or the next day or that's so 
I, this is the last thing I'll say. I just, I'm just really excited. There's so much and the way I process, I say things out loud. Um, but I, I watched this Ted talk where this is a random thing a while ago, this guy named Tom Chi, he's talking about everything being connected and that's the ground of process theology, right? Bonnie, like everything is connected. Absolutely. Um, and he was proving that through a couple different, like, just like meditations on, on, uh, scientific things. And one thing he talked about was our atmosphere was basically created by these little organisms, uh, that became chloroplasts. All the plants kind of captured them. And that's like the, the foundation of, um, creating oxygen. But for a long time, these little entities all over the, the world, I think they were cyanobacteria was, were converting, uh, carbon dioxide to oxygen. And that's what kind of created the possibility for all of life. And he said, it's worth even thinking about ourselves and think about everything that happened after that. Giraffes are possible, like human beings, human culture, all of that came from these tiny little things converting CO2 to oxygen. And he said, it's worth thinking that maybe the meaning of our lives are actually not within the scope of our own understanding. It's like we don't even know how important or what role we're playing in the development of the universe. It's beyond our ability to even kind of comprehend. And it's worth at least giving that a thought because it happens for other other beings and, and entities all the time. Process theology, humans like, well, first of all, the, the leap between inanimate and animate objects is like, it's just it's it's very blurry. It's like just a little blip. So there's that, that, which is a whole philosophical conversation that's really fascinating. But also there's a hierarchy. Processality takes hierarchy seriously. Whitehead says all life is robbery, which means that in order for living things to live, they must consume. And there's a, uh, because God prefers, here's where the hierarchy comes in, prefers more feeling, more complexity, then there's a preference to the more complex life forms. There's there's a more like humans and chimpanzees and dolphins and other creatures that have a capacity uh, to be able to think in more nuanced sort of ways. Those creatures have more capacity to offer wider breadth. Like we can destroy our planet or recreate it. Exactly. Like bigger power to affect bigger things and be bigger partners in that co-creation. Exactly. But they're not more important. So the value is not placed on them in terms of worth, but in terms of like what, what they're able to offer. To me, it just all sort of fits together. The, the more I explore, the more it fits together. And the more I can believe in a God that is love. Love in a vulnerable way, in a way that is um, receptive, as well as also active. Sorry, Bonnie. This is beautiful, right? I mean, this is, this is beautiful. And where, where do we see this but in Jesus being born, Right. Like God trusting us, <laughs> like trusting us with this, this vulnerability, this vulnerable God who trusts us, um, which is also fucking mortifying um, because we, we do have a responsibility to the earth. When I heard Catherine Keller talk um, at a conference, someone said, so where is God in global warming? And her response was the same place God was at the cross with us.
and what we choose to do and how we choose to respond is ours for the making. That can be really awesome or terrifying, <laughs> you know? Uh, God trusts us. Yeah. Yeah. So I know we're getting ready to wrap it up. <laughs> There's a lot more to talk about. The other things I love to talk about is the Odyssey. How do we handle suffering and death and process? So maybe that's another another conversation for another day. Bonnie, I'm glad we all got to sit at your feet today. <laughs> I I am glad that we are all in this together, co-flourishing. <laughs> I, I I want to do more. I want to do more episodes on this just because I have I have yet to let it seep down into all the other elements of my theology and inform them. So I'm I'm ready for that. So if you'd like to learn a little bit more about process theology, there's some great resources out there. There's a book called Process Theology, an introduction, an introductory exposition by John Cobb and David Ray Griffin. That's like basic, great resource for the beginning of your look at process theology. Also, the the book that uh, Alan mentioned on the mystery by Catherine Keller, for those who might be interested in a more feminist view, Catherine Keller also wrote a book called from a broken web separation, sexism, and the self it's rooted in process theology. It's really a lovely book. And of, of course, Alfred North Whitehead process and reality for theology geeks who want to get deeply into where these ideas came from. That's a great book as well. All right. Well, let us know what you think. Uh, you can add your voice or your question to this particular conversation uh, by going to the show notes at iranicast.com slash 153. Uh, there in the show notes, you'll find relevant links and a complete list of all the other ways you can like, follow, and contact the show. That's iranicast.com slash 153. It includes an email address if you want to email us directly. A lot of our conversation is happening on Facebook. If you'd like to comment on when the episode posts there, uh, wherever we are and you comment, we will we will hear you. Uh, so hopefully this will be the first of many conversations on process theology. And in the meantime, on the other side of the music, we are going to uh, play a game in the spirit of process theology and create possibilities for ourselves. Well, actually, I guess it's the opposite. We're limiting possibilities and we're going to be playing a little bit of Would You Rather. All right, so we are going to be playing Would You Rather. We are going to live in the opposite spirit of process theology and narrow our choices to just one or the other, much like many of us did for years of our faith in evangelicalism. So, um, <laughs> turn or burn. Turn or burn, exactly. Exactly. For God or against God? Hell or heaven? Where are you going? Uh, so it, we would give an example of, you know, would you rather do this or this? And then the point of it, obviously, is to create a moral quandary as to which one would we choose? And we can get as typically as, as a former youth pastor, these things can get super gross because you just want the fun gross out factor of it. Uh, but we'll see where this takes us and you'll get a little glimpse, not only into our answers, but who's asking the questions as well. So let's uh, start with Casey. You look really excited about this. So would you rather be forced to watch Donald Trump belly dance 
or be spoon-fed by Mike Pence. I'd rather watch I'd rather watch uh, Donald Trump belly dance any day just because I don't want Mike Pence putting anything in my mouth. That's not what you said in the last episode, Alan. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm going to go with Alan there. I just don't want Mike Pence touching me. I don't want Donald Trump touching me either, but in this case I'm just an observer. Yeah, definitely watch Donald Trump belly dance. <laughs> I don't want to break his rule, you know. I don't want to get too close to him. I think he's only narrowed that rule to one specific uh, gender. I can, yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go be. contrary to everyone, and I'm going to say, uh, did, wait, uh, did you specify what we would be spoon-fed, or just he'd be spoon-feeding no, us? No, yeah, spoon-fed, whatever. I, I'm going with that one, because... You know, Mike Pence lives in the White House. I've heard many stories about how wonderful the chef is at the White House and whatever he's spoon fitting. If it's not ideas or ideals or philosophy, it might be pretty good. So I'm going to go with uh, food over a strip tease from our <laughs> leader. He said belly dance. He did not say strip tease. That's There's right. I just want to see. I just want to <laughs> see Donald Trump with those nipple tassels. You know what I mean? I think that'd be hilarious. He'd be transparent for the first time. Oh. <laughs> it's just like that that orange face and the rest of it just not white orange. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> He's a human being, not an it. All right. Who? Okay, so who? Let's. Uh, I don't know how what order we should do this. Rajiv, how about how about you next? Okay, this this is super bizarre because we didn't discuss this or anything but i've got a belly thing too that <laughs> has donald this, trump this is called it. resonance so <laughs> yeah it's like okay here it is and and i would i would um I, d- just to make it more fun i think when you give your answer uh you should have to say i would rather and then your choice cuz that would make for good listening um would you rather give a belly rub to Donald Trump or eat? Poop? What is happening here? <laughs> <laughs> Depends on whose, because there's these monkeys in the Amazon or whatever that they make coffee from their poop. And yeah, but it's really good. The coffee does not the poop. <laughs> it's not, what? No, it's it's they're they're like it's like a, a some sort of a cat, a big cat that poops out the yeah the coffee beans. I will rub Trump's belly. Like I am not going to eat <laughs> that. Hands down, I would do that in a, the heartbeat. That is an easy choice for me. Yeah. What is this with bellies and eating stuff? Um, I don't know. I would. I would also rub Trump's belly. I couldn't. I would throw up. It wouldn't work to try to why, eat poop. Why am I watching Trump's belly and rubbing it already? That's my question. <laughs> Well, you are. I've already been spoon-fed by Pence, and then I'm rubbing his belly. (laughs) I'd rub his belly. As long as he's not spoon-feeding you poop. Right. Maybe some of the gold flakes from, you know, the vodka he's drinking. Oh, my gosh. Stuff would fall on on me. Like gold dust, you know, when you pray, and it, like, falls on you. 
the middle of a service. It would just be crumbs. Jeff from shaking a- his head. <laughs> he knows what I'm talking about because he was yes. Charismatic. It would just it would just be crumbs from a Big Mac. I or want something Donald Trump's you- <laughs> gold dust to fall on me, so I'll I'll definitely rub his belly. I, look, I would rub Donald Donald Trump's belly, uh, and talk like it's okay. You can like get therapy. You know what I mean? I would just like try to <laughs> try to help him find the help he needs. Sneak some DMT while you're there, like into right, his system, right. inject that's him right. so that he can go to the center of the universe right. and be cured. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, I don't know what. I, wait, gross, just, gross just to back up a little bit, are we are we answering the questions that we propose? <laughs> I don't because I don't know I if think I we have to. I did. I said I I did. I think the yeah, you should. Okay. Oh, it's yeah. I'd eat poop. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> that set up. <laughs> All right, uh, Bonnie. He, he's your okay. husband, so you have to follow that up. <laughs> okay. Well, I have a Trump one too. Good oh my Lord. God! All right, but not. It has nothing to do with bellies or eating people. Eating <laughs> I was going to say, do I have to feed him now? Because I don't know, dude. <laughs> it's actually a, it's a more realistic. Would you rather? Okay, you ready? This is a question for all of us. Would you rather have Trump removed from office? And Pence becomes president now, or too real. Have him stay and risk that he is reelected. I'd rather him stay and be and uh, risk him be reelected. Honestly, I'm very, very afraid of um, Mike Pence becoming president. Um, very, very afraid of that. I would rather have him removed. I think we need some kind of public repudiation, even if it's like not ideal, but just like there needs to be a a reckoning for us. And I I can't imagine him not pulling people down with him. That's what that's what those people do, you know. Like, right. That's right. I've got everyone who's ever worked with like a narcissist in their office or like <laughs> at like a church or something knows exactly who Donald Trump is because we've worked for them, we've been in relationship with them, and they will take everyone down with them. There's no way they go alone. But I don't want to see Pence as, as president. <laughs> that is terrible. Yeah, I. Um, so I'm gonna maybe nuance this a little bit because it's kind of real here. But I think uh, I'm really hoping for impeachment, but not removal from office, partly because I don't think that's going to happen. And partly because I think what Alan said, it's like, let's let this show self-destruct and then hopefully get some good leadership in the White House in 2020. Yeah, I like I definitely want to see him impeached. Like I I definitely want that, but I I am very afraid of Mike Pence. I am. Yeah, agree. He's far I'm, more sinister. I'm pissed that it took this to impeach him though. I think it should have been a long time ago personally for a lot of other very serious offenses. And I think they're like yeah, getting all the GOP in the Senate on record voting to not remove him would be a great thing. To be like, this is who you are, and this is what your record will stand for the rest of your tenure on the Senate. That's probably, yeah. What do you think, Jeff? Jeff? I'd probably say remove him from office, only because I think that 
Pence, if it was before the election, there's no way Pence would win. So I think it would be a short, very short uh, uh, stint. And I think that within that short stint, he wouldn't have any, a chance to do anything really reprehensible because he'd be doing more rebuilding to try to get the Republican Party ready for the next election because I think that they know it would be it would be done. So I, I would go I would go that route. Um, but I do agree with Casey's sentiment that having him as president is awful. But if it was any longer than the time allotted for us right now, I would be more concerned. But I think that this would outweigh that. That's true. I mean, I guess it is one year, like November 20-something, right? Is Good I Lord, mean, Bonnie. Yeah. Are you having us throw stuff out in the universe to see if it's going to happen? Like, what the hell? <laughs> and how much of that year would he be even president and not campaigning? So that's that's my answer. All right, Alan. <laughs> no, Bonnie. Bonnie has that. Bonnie has. Oh, to that's right, Bonnie. What would you pick? Yeah. What are you throwing out in the universe, Bonnie? Well, I, I. This is like a real question, and I, I agree with uh, Jeff that let's get Trump out, and then, and then just be done with the Trump Pence era, then take the chance that it comes back and lasts longer. Um. This this is going to air in like a couple weeks, so it might already be over. It might. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's interesting because if it is, then it'll be like, okay, so what got actualized out of this process? That's right. Right? Did Rajiv ever eat poop? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Been there, done that. Oh, my God. <laughs> Can I, I go next, Jeff? <laughs> yes. Let's move on and pretend that wasn't just said. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Alan, what is, what is yours? Would you rather... Give a complete stranger, they may have good intentions, they may not, access to your bank account for a day or access to your Facebook for a day to Ooh, do, what, to do whatever they want. And they could do whatever they want with it. It's easy for me. I'd say Facebook. Really? Yeah, because I'm not getting my money back. But <laughs> Facebook, after a day, I'd be like, there's this asshole that took over my account. <laughs> yeah. And I can yeah. try to patch that up. <laughs> and I'm not an online Facebook. sharer anyway, so I'm not going to lose anything. It's just you is know, it's like the am I the, am I standing out as a millennial? Casey is it's a friend. It's like <laughs> uh, so I had a panic for a minute, and then I thought, <laughs> and, and then once I heard Rajiv say, "I'm not getting my money back," I was like, "Oh yeah, I'm too poor to not have money." So yeah, <laughs> take my Facebook. Really, you were all Facebook. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting that what I hear is that Facebook and bank accounts are like really the same for millennials. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. Like you're, I don't you're, think so. You're like present. Like I, I think social media is a massive, a massive deal. Jeff, you're not a millennial, so you can't answer for us. <laughs> well, right. You're, you're Gen, you're the forgotten generation, whatever that's called. Gen X. Always, Thank Gen you. X. They always do these things on the news where they list all the, the generations and Gen X is not even there. It's really funny. <laughs> we were the, we were the, we it's were the height funny. of our powers. I'm Gen X too. It's funny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, just, don't, don't, don't be hating because we have bank accounts now. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but but I'm saying Facebook in particular, millennials are less and less on that. It's more other the younger platforms. millennials are less and less on Facebook. Yeah. Older millennials still stick to it. That's a metonymy for like all of social media. I mean, like all of social media, all your social media accounts is what I is what I kind of meant. 
Yeah. I still would say for uh, a day. Same answer, but yeah. And Alan? Yeah, I would definitely do bank account. If it was if it was all fa- if it was all social media, then I'd have to say uh, you can work at my money. <laughs> there you go, dude. See, I knew it. <laughs> I have like you have I have way too many conversations that I don't want someone to go in there and start like pretending they're me. Like they could do damage. They could do tons of damage. Oh my gosh. And to me, that that like yeah, I guess you're right. That is kind of a weird thing. Okay, so he- here thing, here's the the day after. You you get on social media and you're like, hey, I'm sorry. There's this weird got hacked. person that commandeered all my social oh, media accounts. No, it's more and, than that. It's like telling and, someone I've had private conversations. Yeah, with okay. Like, hang, hang on. I'm hang not on, trustworthy. Hang on. Versus then you walk into your bank and talk to the manager and be like, so there was this weirdo that just took all my money and spend it wantonly. And they're going to be like, yeah, you can see yourself out. See, I, I think there's a way to recoup the social media stuff. Maybe, maybe not. Right. Well, the whole premise is, especially with your bank, is you gave them permission to do it. So it's not like they took your money, and which you might have a case with the bank, is that you said, here you go, one day, have fun. No, maybe they maybe, maybe got coerced. Maybe they were like, you know, put a gun to your head, choose one, and you had to give up the details. I don't want someone to know how often I've been to Taco Bell. <laughs> but no seriously like i think i have like such like deep conversations with people maybe i'm asking someone to to you know russia if you're listening like i uh i have so many com- deep conversations with people if someone was able to like access all of that for a day those are no longer safe spaces you can never have like they can't trust you to have those kinds of connections anymore you know so it's less about the capital itself and more about well, it's about like information about you. Yes. Yeah. Information flow. Not just about me. Like, I don't, I, I care less about that. I'm an open book, but just the conversations in general, I think. Yeah. That's it. That may, may be a generational thing. I don't, I don't think I have that many really deep, uh, life changing conversations on social media. It is a generational yeah. thing. Apparently. I'll, uh, I'll pick up the phone. Um, or, you know, write a letter and put a postage stamp on it. No, that's not true. I'd never mm-hmm. do that. <laughs> You'll fax your thoughts. <clears throat> yeah, that's right, man. interesting. What a, what a what a roller coaster of a segment. Um, <laughs> like, geez, what what is happening here? We got we started out super weird and gross and uncomfortable, and then we got all philosophical about generational uh, social media habits. And wow! All right, so that's let's finish stuff. it off with this. Yes. Would yeah. you rather laugh when you're sad or cry when you're happy? Cry when I'm happy. Cry when I'm happy. Why? Because I do yeah. anyway. Cry when I'm happy. Because <laughs> I do anyway. I get happy and cry all the time. So what's the premise? Are you saying that like you're going to be representing yourself in this opposite sort of way with right. other people? For the rest of your life, anytime you're sad, oh, okay, you're wait, going, I didn't realize that's yeah, what you no, were saying. For the rest of your life, every time you're sad, you're going to laugh. Every time you're happy, you're going to cry. Like that is your default response from now on. So you go to a comedy, you're crying. You go to a really serious drama, you're laughing. I would still pick crying because I want to look mysterious. And I'm with my friends and they're like, oh, why are you crying? Is it that funny? And I would just keep crying more because it gets funnier. <laughs> I would pick crying too, but I think it's because that emotion 
crying when you're happy is forgiven. (laughs) Whereas laughing when you're sad, people will just think you're like. That's what I. Yeah. A psychopath. People do that, though. They do laugh when they're sad. Look, I laugh when I'm uncomfortable. Like, I like that's something that I had to really work on when I was, you know, early in my ministry, because there are, there are moments that are really uncomfortable. And my first, first inner response is laughter. And uh, yeah. you laugh a lot with me, Casey. Yeah, you make <laughs> me feel uncomfortable. Alan. <laughs> no, I, uh, I do yeah, my best. I have a I have a great story that I'll share at some point about that. But yeah. Rajiv, how about you? Oh yeah, I I would choose crying. I mean, men men are so so out of touch with their emotions. So just go ahead and cry. Yeah, but that's not the only emotion. Laughing is an emotion too. Like, why would that be any less in touch with emotions? Yeah, but that's you know that's the tough guy response. Okay, once again, I'm on the (laughs) other I'm on the other end of this, and I would easily laugh when I'm sad. Because number one, laughing feels good. So maybe it would, you know, counteract a little bit of that sadness. And then number two, it's a built-in barrier for me with people. So I don't have to deal with them. They'll just think I I'm a jerk and won't want to talk to me. <laughs> I knew that was coming. Full circle in the process thought. You're, you're like those two, two guys in the balcony on the, the Muppet Show. Yes, both of them at the same time. No. Yeah. But seriously, I would, I would go that just because I think it's uh, – it would help me a little bit if I'm sad because, you know, sometimes they say like laughing, finding something funny to do and all that kind of stuff. And so I would you just like crack up at a funeral. And well, I just wouldn't go to funerals. Like it's super simple. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm serious. I, I would still be aware of like what I go up in public and I would just, you know, find more appropriate places to not go in public. And so I'd, I'd like to, to, to flesh out how that RSVP would sound. So I'm, I'm sorry I can't come to your funeral because I have this condition that I laugh uncontrollably when I'm sad. No, I would just and lie. So, I would just send a note and say, I'm so sorry I can't be there. I had a prior engagement. My condolences and I wouldn't go. Like it, I just, <laughs> Or I call the day of and say I'm sick. Like I just lie. <laughs> <laughs> or just say I'm too sad. I can't come. Super easy. I'm, I'm maybe limiting my own possibilities, but I'm creating more possibilities for grieving for others and not offending them. So I feel like I would be doing a service. This is so funny. <laughs> it, this is a that's a great question because I think laughter and and crying are really closely related, and we have both responses to both emotions. Well, it's and better than so, my- yes. Let's expand the possibility of of what's an appropriate response to either one of those emotions. Right. Well, it's better than my other question, which was, "Would you rather drink pee or rub Pence's belly?" So you know, it kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely drink Thank pee. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> drink pee. All right. That'll definitely do it for us this Round week. Round two. <laughs> uh, if you found, again, any value in the show, like I always feel weird about adding that sentence after our segment, but I think people enjoy the banter. But if you found any value in the show and you would like to support us, check out irenacast.com slash support. There you'll find all the ways you can support the show, uh, including our PayPal link, Amazon, and then checking out our brand new Irenacast merch. And don't forget the... Don't forget to subscribe to the show and never miss an episode. We're available on all major podcasting platforms. And while you're there, if the platform allows it, leave us a rating and or review. Uh, We're always looking for more and more ways to hear from you. So for this week, I'm Jeff. It's your boy, Alan. I'm Bonnie. I'm Casey. This is Rajiv. Thanks for joining the conversation. 